0: miracle Uh, my home group is the gratitude study group in raleigh north carolina i uh i don't live in raleigh i live in Cary, but that's because i got sober in cincinnati Uh, i just moved to north carolina a year ago and they told me that Cary actually stands for containment area for relocated yankees so so i picked right i'm in the right you know i guess they just keep us all pinned up in one place so they can keep an eye on us you know um but I do I do escape out to Raleigh to go to my home group. So uh it's it's a wonderful group. They have a an open speaker meeting on Monday night and a big book study on Thursday night. And if you're ever in Raleigh, I invite you to come. It's eight o'clock. Um I wanna thank the committee for a, just a wonderful weekend. Um, it's just you know, there uh it's a lot of work. I've been on convention committees and it is a lot of work and especially the volunteers who weren't even on the committee because I'm I'm guessing by Sunday morning you have learned that your ribbon while it looks like it says volunteers what it really says is ask me stupid questions. And, you know, it's it's like we're in a target all weekend cuz well, cuz we like to complain, you know. Um, somebody asked me if I like to talk first or last and I kind of joked about, you know, Sunday morning I get the last word and what could be better than that? But uh you know, then I was listening to Ed last night, and I realized that Sunday morning is hard because these guys have set the bar really high this weekend. You know, I, I kind of was hoping everybody would sleep in this morning and just mull over Ed's talk. Um, but you know, I didn't get to hear Lyle, but I, I am uh, I'm familiar with with his story, and and uh, John did a great job, and Stephanie, I just love. I've, I've seen Stephanie many times, and and I hadn't gotten to hear Ed before. Um, but it's just, you know, what a great weekend and, and what a diverse group we are. I mean, talk about people who would normally not mix, you know. I mean John who didn't even drink till I forget he was old though, I mean over twenty, you know, anymore. Um and, and me who was a poster child for Alcoholics Anonymous at seventeen. And um although I didn't drink till I was fifteen, I always have to kind of apologize for that at young people's conventions because most of them are sober already and I wasn't even drinking yet. Um so, you know, I was thinking about when John talked about that pill, you know, that science hasn't done it yet, but if there was ever a pill that would make us drink normally, and he kind of said, well, who would want to do that anyway? But I'm thinking, you know, with with at least an alcoholic of my type in the way I think, there's a more fundamental issue with that, and that is, and, and see if you can go with me here, if one pill could make me drink one or two drinks normally, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I think that's why the pill will never work. <laughs> Cause, uh, hey, you know, four or five would that would work better. Um, let's see. My husband called this morning and and asked me to send you his love. My husband's name is Chuck, and uh, and he loves all of you because Alcoholics Anonymous brought us together, and and he sent his love to you guys because you've been taking care of his wife all weekend, and uh and he appreciates that. I, I, um, you know, we we have a good marriage, and and we met here. Um, We've, we've been sober a few years, and and then we dated after that. And you'll hear later that, you know, my idea of dating had to change dramatically when I got here. Um, but I, I need to tell you a few things up front, because sometimes, you know, you get on a roll and forget. And that is that I am married, will be married 12 years in July. Um, I have two children that were four and six years old when I got sober, and they are now 20 and 22 years old. And they are both uh, active duty military in the United States Army. And uh, we're very proud of them both. My daughter's actually they're both in Korea. Um, my daughter will be done at the end of the month, and she's going to Fort Hood, Texas from there. And and, uh, and my son is in Korea until it's July, and then uh, it's looking. We're kind of like, knock on wood, like he might go to Fort Bragg, which is 50 miles from us. So, of course, we think that would be great. We don't know how great he thinks it will be, but I'm very pleased. Um, so, you know, and my children grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, they they know that AA is a clean, well-lit place. You know, they they know it's here and um you know that's a wonderful thing and and it's a bit of a double-edged sword you know Um my father got sober in 1966 when i was seven years old so i knew about a.a you know but he i wasn't as involved in his sobriety as my kids have been in mine but um you know i did know that if you were alcoholic and went to a.a it meant you to never drink again you know and uh And I went to open meetings with him on Friday night because they couldn't always afford a sitter. And so I'd seen Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew it was full of old people that smoked and drank coffee and ate donuts, you know, because I'd been there. I'm sure they were 30, 35 years old. I was 7. It was pretty old at the time. But, you know, I so I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I knew that it meant don't drink. And and I knew as I got older and was drinking that I never even, you know, I heard some people kind of muse, oh, well, yeah, I'm alcoholic. Oh, well, in the bar. And I kind of knew if I even put it out there in the universe in the same sentence with my, you just wouldn't hear that A word in the same sentence with my name because I knew the AA police would just swoop in, say, get in the car, and, <laughs> you know, I'd have to go to a meeting and not drink anymore. Um, I was an only child. I was a... Um, I wouldn't have told you I was a big thinker, but I know now that I was, you know, looking back. I was, uh, when I first came to AA and they talked about being self-centered, I didn't really get it. I thought that meant selfish and vain, and I was one of the most loving, giving people I knew, so I, that you know, so I didn't have to pay attention to that stuff. And I didn't know that self-centered just meant I thought the entire world was watching me, you know? I mean, I was, I was never I was never participating in my own life. I was watching everybody else watch me. I couldn't have a conversation with somebody over here without, in the corner of my eye, looking at you guys saying, you know, okay, do we look like we're having fun? Or, you know, I bet you wish you were my friend. You know, or or I would need to be seen with you so that you guys would know I was okay or you would know. And it was all about, I was a spectator in my own life, like up here in the bleachers, just, watch and I never I remember when I was about six months over I was talking to somebody and I realized in the middle of it that I was having a conversation where they talked and then I talked and it you know it it was just kind of flowing and I I mean when I had a conversation you would start your sentence and I'd finish it for you and choose from six or seven available answers you know to figure out which was the best I mean there was just noise up here all the time I couldn't stand to be by myself I just couldn't and I know now It's because when I was alone, the noise in my head was too loud, and it would tell me that you guys were talking about me, and that you didn't really even like me. You know, that you just, I would have one good friend at a time. One, you know, one friend. And don't talk to my friend because she might like you better. And then I'll have to get another friend, and meanwhile you guys will be talking about me, and you'll tell your friends, and they'll tell their friends, and remember that shampoo commercial, you know, and they told their friends, and they told their friends, and and then, you know, I would walk in and you guys would all laugh. I mean, I just, I just, I thought if I walked in and two people leaned their heads together and laughed, they were talking about me. Something I did in fourth grade. You know, I just, I didn't understand that you guys were all thinking about you and, you know. <laughs> no, that's why I don't worry. AA dances now. When I first got sober and went to an AA dance, and I was worried about not being able to dance and, and, and my sponsor said, yeah, but everybody else is worried about what they look like. They're not paying any attention to you, you know. And it was like, oh, okay. But I never, you know, I always hung out with big families. I just kind of morphed into them. And uh, and I was just a frenzy of activity by seventh grade. You know, I was in pep club and cheerleading two times when I was just busy, 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 busy. And I was the ringleader. And I would have told you, I mean, out, on the outside, I looked pretty well-adjusted. I was an avid reader. I read a lot, you know. Um, that, I think, is the reason that school came very easily to me. I was one of those test takers. I had no work ethic when it came to school. Because I didn't need one, you know. I could read the chapter before class started and take the test. So, you know, I mean, I I, I didn't understand the concept of a second draft of an English paper taught in college. Because, I mean, why? <laughs> you know, draft one gets an A. Why would you rewrite it? But, um, you know, I didn't know what a thinker I was. And and one of the funniest things I ever heard, um, Dr. Paul was speaking somewhere and he read the 20 you know the 20 question pamphlet, except everywhere he said drinking, he put in thinking. And, I mean, I was on it because he's like, you know, have you ever felt remorse after thinking? You know, have you ever missed work due to your thinking? You know, is <laughs> I mean, thinking affecting your family life? And I was like, you know, I, it's all true. It's all true. I um like I said, I thought everybody was watching me. It, and if it wasn't easy, I didn't do it. You know, if I wasn't good at it by the third time, I didn't do it. Life was real black and white to me. I never put together that people practiced to be good at what they did. I never, you know, I never put together that my friends who couldn't come out to play because they had piano lessons or they had to practice were the ones who could play the piano. You know, I would just see them playing the piano and just think, well, it must be nice to be so talented. I never, I never connected those thoughts. I never, you know, I got to seventh grade and we're all learning to put on makeup and, and I would put on eyeliner with a stupid and I would just think, well, I just must have one of those faces, you know, you can't wear eyeliner. It didn't occur to me that my friends were in front of the mirror for hours putting it on taking it off but you know i didn't i that whole like set a goal work for the goal achieve the goal just went right over my head you know and, and my daughter who uh i would have told you when when i was newly sober she was four and robbie was six and and i would have told you she was the one that was going to drink i mean we used to joke that uh most people say for college and we were saving for treatment and uh you know, she took a weird turn on us when she was 10 or 11, and and I always tell this story because this tells me, you know, I, I mean, well, you'll see. Uh, she wanted to be on a swim team, and she hadn't, you know, she didn't have much experience in the water. We got her a few lessons. She tried out for the team, and the coach said, okay, you you know, I think you got potential. You could be on the team, but you really should practice with the 9-year-old because you can't keep up with your age group. Now, I would have walked away right then. I was, you know, I, I need 11. I can't. How's it going to work if I'm swimming with a nine-year-old, for God's sake? You know what I mean? But that was fine with her because she wanted to swim. And then she went to her first swim meet, and it was a big USS meet where they just run heats and heats and then put up the results with your name so anybody walking by can see how you did, which is fine if you're in the top five, you know. And uh, And she was 70th out of 72, and she went back the next day. Now, I would have been trying to get my parents to move <laughs> far away. You know, and, and we had told her, well, Sarah, you know, swimming's competitive, but you also are competing against yourself. So now you have this baseline time. If you beat your time, even if you didn't win the race, it's been a successful race because you have a new best time. Now, the whole time I'm telling her this, I am thinking, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is stuff that's in the parent handbook for self-esteem building. This is not stuff that, I knew my, I'm sure my parents told me the same thing and I didn't believe it for a minute. It was all about winning. She beat her time. She was happy, you know. Now, the rest of that story is two years later, she was a state double-A swimmer, swimming in the Junior Olympics in Keating Auditorium in Cincinnati, you know. And I would have missed all of that the day they told me to practice with a nine-year-old, you know. Now, I also have to tell you that when she was 11, I was seven years sober. And I was having a bit of a problem sitting up with the parents watching practice being the mother of the 11-year-old that was swimming with the 9-year-old, because how's it look, you know? Where's your daughter? Oh, She's down there, you know. Um, I just, I'm all about, I don't want to look bad. I don't like to look bad, you know? And Sarah somehow grasped that concept of set a goal, work for the goal, achieve the goal, which had gone over my head. So we started suspecting there was something a little wrong with her. And... Uh, <laughs> Then she went on into high school, and I think her junior year of Starbucks opened where we lived, and she came home and said, "We went to Starbucks after school, and I said, "Oh, that's great, honey, you know who went and she said, "Oh stacy and and Lindsay and Jennifer, and I went, "Oh, her and she looked up and she's like, "For God's sake, Mom, that was sixth grade. Could you let it go <laughs> So at that point Chuck and I said, Well, you know, there really needs to be one mature person in the house. Congratulations, it looks like it's you. You know. Um uh, I mean what that tells me though is that even before I drank my thinking was not right. You know, my thinking was not right. I would no more have gotten in the water with those nine year olds, you know, and and she she was okay with she is not obsessed with how's it look, what will they think, what are they talking about? And I couldn't identify with being self centered when I got here. <laughs>
1: You know, I um,
0: I did drink at 15. Uh, a lot of my friends were starting to experiment with alcohol. They were falling down. They were throwing up, looking bad. You know, um, so I didn't get real drunk the first time out. I just kind of put on a glow. I relaxed. I wouldn't have told you I was uptight. Um, but I went out and got my best friend drunk the next night so that I'd have somebody to drink with. And uh, and that friendship didn't last another year because we drank very differently. You know, from the beginning. Within a year of getting drunk the first time, I had totaled a car. My grades plunged. My friends changed. My appearance changed. Everything about me changed. I was a poster child for adolescent treatment, but adolescent treatment wasn't real big back in the 70s, so I just kind of slid on through, you know. And um, I ended up, I graduated in uh, high school in three years because I didn't drink till I was 15, and uh, and I went off to college at a Big Ten school and. uh in the middle of a 21 state, I did not do my research. Oh, by the way, I've never seen so many people in one room who actually know what 3-2 beer is. <laughs> there are so many Ohio people here. Um, anyway, I went off to college with, you know, uh, high, about 96 percentile SAT scores. I had a .8 at the end of my first semester because I just couldn't go to class. And now you know I'm in the middle of a 21 state. It wasn't even a lot of drinking. But I I didn't know it was fear. I didn't know, but, you know, I would walk into class the first day, and there would be a person in two or three seats, and a person in two or – and I would say, you know, hi, my name's Beth. You might say, hi, I'm... my name's Ed, and that's my turn to talk, you know. And I probably should be saying something. <laughs> He's just looking at you. What do you say after my name's Beth? You know, I mean, and these voices are up here, just staring at you, talk. No, you can't talk. Now you've been staring at them for five minutes. Just turn around and walk away. Don't run, you will fall. Just walk very fast, you know. Get away, get away. And I, I mean, because I couldn't, and I didn't know that being Beth wasn't enough, that that was my problem, that, you know, I was always Beth that cheerleader. I was Beth the night auditor at the hotel, you know. I was Beth, always Beth the something, you know, because just being Beth, I felt like if I had just said, my name's Beth, that you were just thinking, So, you know, I mean, like, what's the rest of it? And I couldn't, so I couldn't, I couldn't go back because, I mean, I just, you guys all knew how to talk. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys all knew how to talk. I mean, the room was separated into two distinct groups when I walked in. All of you and me. You know? Uh and it can still do that. That's kind of one of my signs if I'm a little spiritually unfit. If I walk in somewhere and the room parts into two, except you know, one part is very big and other parts me. But you know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, just for some new people, um, I didn't I didn't walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, say, Thank God I'm home, I want what you have and live happily ever after. I mean that's just not my story. This is the last place I wanted to be. For one thing my dad was an AA for God's sake, you know, It was, and it, it was my parents' solution. And uh, and that's why I said it's a double-edged sword, like with my son, I think, because, you know, um your, your parents just don't really know what they're doing until so you're about 30. And uh, then it changes, but I didn't, you know, and it was kind of, I knew AA was there, and that was very nice, and, and, uh, and uh, besides, I just, I'd love to drink. I mean, I should probably throw that in there. I'd love, to drink I had a huge capacity for alcohol from the beginning I drank with the big boys because I could you know I didn't really drink with girls when I got the alcohol Anonymous and they said hang with the women I just thought oh you don't understand I mean I didn't even drink with women I why would I I didn't have to you know what I mean I mean I could keep up with the men women to me fell down threw up giggled somewhere known to wear pink in public you know um, <laughs> Why would I want to do that, you know? Or or they were hitting on the guy that I liked. Or they were hunting for me because I had slept with the guy that they liked, you know? It was very complicated drinking with women. There was way too much baggage. And, you know, I would have maybe one friend that that we would meet at the bar because she could drink a lot, too. You know, we had similar philosophies on life. So we would meet at the bar because any bar drinkers in here? All right. Well, now you know that if true love strikes, you got to be ready to go, you know? And if you gotta run your friend home first, he might fall in love while you're gone. So you had to be ready. You know, you had to have your own car. So you know, this girl and I, we would meet at the bar with our own cars. But you know, I mean, it's like because you just you gotta be ready for true love. And and, you know, that that was my dating. By the way, you know, I always thought I really was more of a social drinker. The more I drank, the more social I got. And I was very social by two or three in the morning. You know, and and and. so, you know, that was my first marriage. It was like a one-night stand that just kind of dragged on for five years.
1: But, uh,
0: you know, I mean, isn't that dating? Bring them home if you like them. If you can remember their name in the morning, they can stay, you know. <laughs> Made sense to me. Um, so, anyways, I plunked out of college. I, I went back to Ohio. Briefly, I got a job in a bank because I thought I'd dis- disgrace my parents not going to college, so I got a nice white collar job, and that wasn't working. They worked Monday, they worked at 9 o'clock in the morning, and it just wasn't working for me. And so I took off to Florida, because, you know, one of, I heard Sharon Barger speak once, and she said she was from Iowa, and that was her first resentment. And I knew what she meant, because that's how I felt about Ohio. I'd been born in Northern California, my parents moved to Ohio when I was two, before I was old enough to argue, and by first grade, I knew there were places way cooler than Ohio, you know? And uh, so I took off to Florida with a friend, and, you know, <laughs> I heard a guy say when I was pretty new at AA, he said, you know, they should put a sign at the border, the state line of Florida, California, and Arizona that says this state doesn't work either. <laughs> Many of us could just turn around and go back home. But I got to Florida, and, you know, that's where I was home. Those were my people. I mean, this I moved to this little town on the Gulf. It wasn't developed yet. And the whole town was three miles long, and people bought beer on this end of town to drink on the way to the bar on this end of town. Those are my people, you know. And, uh, and I got a job right away because I'd worked in a convenience store up north, and it was so transient where I was that if you showed up at work three days in a row, you were management material. So, you know, by the time I got around to telling my parents I had moved, because I didn't mention, oh, by the way, I'm moving to Florida. I just left. And uh, by the time I called, I was like, oh, don't worry, I'm assistant manager at this store. And, you know, and, and my mom said something she would say many times after that, which was, how could you do something that's stupid and land on your feet? And uh, and I always did. And I trusted that I would. I always knew I would. I was tell Mary, my favorite bumper stickers expect a miracle. You know, I pull in places, and I know there's going to be a parking place in the front, and there is. And I think... Somehow underneath it, I'm not sure if it was a great faith in God or just total stupidity, but I just always kind of knew I would come out landing on my feet, whatever I got into. And I just, and, and I did, I would have consequences, you know, but it was just goofy stuff. I got suspended from school one time, because we all skipped beer. Green Beer Day was a wonderful Oxford tradition at St. Patrick's Day. But we skipped school and went to Green Beer Day and got caught, and they suspended us, as they should have. Um, but it snowed that night, like two feet, so there was no school the next day. So no school, no suspension on my record, you know. And and that's the kind of, it's like that guy in a cartoon that walks down the street and the pianos and the face are just falling behind them, you know. I mean, that was me. I would just went merrily on. So I made to Florida, and really my drinking caught up with me pretty fast there because, like I said, those were my people. And uh, I was 19 years old. And, and by the end of a year, it was becoming obvious that I couldn't support myself. And, uh, you know, there were two principles that I lived by that I'm pretty sure my parents never taught me. One was, it's not all right not to know. I mean, for God's sake, don't ask a question because then they'll know that you don't know. You know, just pretend, and maybe you can pick up some clues as you go. And the other one was, don't ever, 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 ever admit that you made a mistake, you know. Um, I mean, my philosophy was, like, I bought this ticket on the Titanic. I am taking my boat ride, you know. Um so I was in a dilemma in Florida because if I had said, you know, if I'd moved back to Ohio I would have been admitting that I'd made a mistake moving maybe and that, you know that was a hard choice. And as luck would have it, this guy moved in from California and uh and my reputation hadn't caught up to him yet. And uh so I just you know, and he had everything I was looking for and a guy at a house, a car and a job. True love. And <laughs> And on top of that, he was six foot two with tattoos a Harley Davidson. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that, you know? I was, I was saved. God has sent me help. And, and so, you know, we started this five year dance of death that we were on and, and it was, I mean, you know, I don't have to say much more than that. We did have both kids in that marriage and, uh, and, you know, that God can turn any bad to good. And I believe that, you know, that my children are, are proof of that. And, uh, I ended up, we moved to the Keys. We were in Upper Keys, Ross. Well, same thing, you know, six-month-old baby, went down for the Fourth of July weekend, liked it, came back Tuesday, moved Friday with $400 and a six-month-old baby. Hey, Mom, moved to the Keys, but don't worry, I'm assistant manager at this restaurant. You know, I could just hear her pounding her head on the phone. And uh, and uh from there, I went into the night audit, just, you know, and, and I so I'm a night auditor at this oceanfront resort in the Keys. I'm skinny. It's a skinny year. Those were good years, you know. Um I mean, it's like when Bill Wilson said I had arrived. I mean, this place had seven bars, three restaurants. I applied for the job. I found out my pay was going to double and I had the keys to every bar on the property. I mean, it's like I had arrived. And, uh, and there were lots of other, you know, outside issues down there. And, um, you know, which, which I did my share. I mean, I was a child of the seventies. Um, one thing I'm really grateful for though is, is that, you know, as I look back over, over all of this thing, you know, I didn't have to come in wondering, am I anything besides an alcoholic? You know, because when I look back, every single other thing I did as I got older and it interfered with my drinking, it went. Bottom line, it went. You know, the uh the pain pills and stuff I never really liked. That just meant I blacked out at eight o'clock at midnight. You know, I was still on my feet all night. Um, the the white powder was my I'm not drinking because, you know, nothing nothing really tastes good anyway. And uh and in the keys it was you know, it was not a big challenge to not drink down there with, you know, lots of that floating around. And the other one, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, the one thing I do kind of just mull over is the diet pills. Because, I mean, it's like you could drink for days, you're skinny, and your house is clean. Now, what is... (laughs) That one I still have a little trouble with. Is that a bad thing, you know? (laughs) But, you know, I mean, time wore on and I couldn't stand myself after two days of them, so I, I quit them, you know, and, and I quit smoking dope because if I, if I, if I had had even two beers and smoked any pot, I was paralyzed. You know, I couldn't move. And, and you can't drink if you can't move, so I quit smoking dope. I mean, everything, everything, as my alcoholism progressed, anything that interfered with it had to go. And over the course of the years, that included my children, that included my employment, that included drugs and alcohol. That included a relationship with my mother, you know. Uh, I lost custody of my children in 1985. I went through treatment only to not go to jail, you know. And that's where I I was in, you know, I'm, I'm in treatment, and, and I'd been in there 10 days, and I got word that my father had died, and I was devastated, you know. And, by the way, my children were taken from me. Because I lived up the street from a bar, and I I, they went to bed, and I realized I only had one beer in the house, and I went down the street to drink, bottom line. You know, I used to say I went down for cigarettes, but I went down there with 20 bucks for cigarettes. And it wasn't the first time I had left them alone. It was the first time I got caught. You know, and it amazes me the distance it takes for something to get from the head to the heart, because while I was in treatment, they would take us to this place in Cincinnati, four or five Oak Street for meetings, and I heard a man talk the first night I was there, and he talked about when he was out of alcohol that he would taste the floor. And I would think, how pathetic. How sad. You know, God, you need to be here. And I didn't even put together that what I had done was taste the floor and then make a decision to go to the bar. You know, I mean, a single mom deal was, was hard and my parent, and my children were removed from my custody. It's the grace of God that my mother would take them because I used to say when mom took my kids, but she didn't. Hamilton County took them and they would not have given them back if she had not taken them. And, uh, and when they were with her, they were fed age-appropriate food. They were bathed every night. She read stories to them every night. They were on time to hair in clean clothes, and I couldn't do any of that, and I hated her for doing it, and I made her life hard every turn, you know, because I was so angry, but I wouldn't have told you I was angry, you know, and I went through treatment, and, and I was the one, now you have to remember, I had a dad in AA. I had a big book that he sent me in, in Florida because I briefly got fired from my job, and so I went to one AA meeting, the Key Largo group of Alcoholics Anonymous and then I went to my boss and told him, you know, I knew I had a problem, I was one AA, I got my job back. This AA stuff works, you know. And I was pretty much done with AA after that, but uh my dad sent me a big book at that point. So, you know, I'm in treatment, I have a book my dad sent me, I have a tape of his talk. I have a 12 and so he'd been throwing things in the box for a really long time, waiting on me to go to AA. So he didn't just send a book, he sent a box of stuff. But uh you know, I was in there the tenth day, got word that my dad had died. And I was devastated because I was going to come out and be Jim's daughter, you know. I still, I couldn't just be that. How the heck do you do that? And uh, and I was the only child of divorced parents, so I got the insurance money, you know. And, and that, I'm sure, I got here 10 years sooner because I got to drink like I wanted to drink for the next two and a half years, you know. But meanwhile, I had this treatment thing and this pending jail. So, I you know, I was the one the counselors would come get to talk to women who didn't want to leave their kids for six weeks. You know, and I would tell them better six weeks now than forever later, and we can't be good moms if we're not sober. And I could give them the company line, you know, but it was crap to me. I knew because, you know, my secret was that I was glad my mom had my kids. I did not want my children. You can't tell people you don't want your children. They look at you weird. It looks very bad, you know. Um what I didn't know was that I didn't want my children because I suffered from alcoholism and that I was bankrupt mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I had nothing to give them. I was empty. I was empty. I had nothing to give them. Um, plus, they interfere with my drinking, you know. Um, and and so I would be telling these women oh, we have to be good moms, but inside I'm glad my kids are gone. You know, if so I start this double life that the book talks about and. And as I got out, the children say my mom's custody. But I would tell you, oh yes, I want my kids back. You know, but the voice in the back of my head is, oh, I'm glad they're gone. You know, and uh, and then periodically for the next two or three years, I would try to quit drinking. And you know, I will tell you, after 24, 48 hours of not drinking with no solution, a lot of guilt can creep in, and it's very noisy, very noisy. And, uh, I, I maybe would have a good day without a drink and my head would be almost to the pillow and then the voices would start, yeah, that's it. you don't even want your kids. Man, why don't you apply that by somebody? You know, what, what the hell kind of person are you? And I would just have, you know, I would just shut out the noise again and, and I, um, I just kept drinking. I drank, you know, I just drank. And, uh, and I failed to show up to pick up my kids on weekends and I, if I did pick them up, my idea of quality time was to go to somebody else's house where the mom drank. And the kids would play and we would drink, you know. And that was absolutely the best I could do. And I thought I wasn't hurting anybody. I thought, why don't you just leave me alone, you know. And we've talked a lot about that this weekend. I can't imagine what it took for my mother. I finally, I ran off to Florida in 1988 because I knew they all missed me. I knew they'd been sitting down there going, God, I wish Beth would come back. And uh, because I moved, I got divorced and moved to Ohio in 1984. And I did, I tried AA, you know. Friday Night Young People was very big. Um, although I kind of secretly thought bikers maybe were my problem, not, you know, and uh, and so I went, my mom lived in this real, I mean, the whole neighborhood could have come out of an L.L. L. Bean catalog, and uh so I went to a bar there, you know, and, and I'm just minding my own business, drinking, and the only guy in the whole place with a Harley shirt is the one that sends me a drink. I'm thinking, how do they know, you know, how do they know, but I, you know, and I tried AA, but you guys, you know, you just were not remember my name. Now, it didn't dawn on me that 400 new people a week came through, and maybe one came back, and. Plus, I'm sure I didn't stand up and say I was new, because then you'd know I was new. And let's face it, new people do not look good. You know, it's like, I love when Vincio says, it, if you're new, we already know a lot about you. You know, for starters, we know it hasn't been a good year. <laughs> so I didn't say I was new, and I didn't really talk to anybody. And you can't ask questions, because they'll know you don't know. And and uh, But, you know, if I went to a bar by myself, I knew who I needed to know. If I had five bucks. I was set for the night. I had no problem walking into a bar knowing nobody. You know, I could get a beer, head for the pool table, and at two o'clock in the morning I knew who could drink as much as me. I knew who knew where the party was after. I knew who shot pool. I was set, you know. And I just I couldn't I just couldn't get it in AA. It was too again, scary. I just didn't know I was afraid. So, um, you know, I take off to Florida at the end and uh because, you know, this just this... what my children suffered was not physical abuse for me, Um, not even really much verbal abuse. I mean, I get angry and scream, but it was a broken toy. You know, I I didn't go, you're stupid, you broke your toy. It wasn't that kind of thing. But what my children suffered in my hands was being invisible in their own home, you know. My children got messages from me like, I love you, go away. Yes, I love you, get away from me. Of course I love you, honey. Go play with your toys. Go play with your sister. Go pick up your room. I told you to make your bed. Of course I love you, honey. You know, go play. Go play. I would take them to the zoo, but we can look at anything. You know what I mean? It's like, thank God, Cincinnati. And the, another thing they told me in treatment is alcohol makes all your choices for you. And I thought that was ridiculous, you know. And I got sober, and I realized my children had never been inside a McDonald's with me because they don't sell beer. Why would I go in there, you know? I mean, i go to the drive through window if I had a bottle of rum and get a big big toast. But, I mean, thank God. that Cincinnati is a good German town. So the the zoo sells beer, and the the Coney Island pool sells beer. And, you know, if they didn't, Kings Island sold beer. And and my kids never would have gone anywhere if it hadn't been for that. But, you know, the the message my kids got all the time was, I love you, go away. I love you, get away from me. And I was so into my own head and didn't even know it that they could be sitting right next to me talking to me. And while I went, "Uh uh uh-huh, 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 I didn't hear a word they said. You know, one of the things you guys taught me was how to talk to my children, um, which is stop what you're doing, put it down, Sit down, look them in the eye, and talk to them. I didn't know how to do that, you know, because I'm busy. I mean, and people talk about it, we're busy people, like dogs running on linoleum, but we're busy. And uh so I took off to Florida, uh, you know, spent three or four days drinking down there. I was tired at the end, I was just tired. The money was gone by now, you know. I took off the Florida mom's credit card, which I neglected to ask her if I could take, and uh, and I and I Got down there, so I'm in the Fort Myers Airport, June 26, 1988, and the credit card is as tired as me, and it won't get a ticket home. So I had some choices, you know, and and I thought about hitchhiking, (laughs) but here's where character defects saved my life. I had just stolen a bunch of clothes right before I went to Florida, and they were in my suitcase, and I was afraid if I, you know, hitchhiked, I knew I'd end up hooking up with people that drank, and I would lose my suitcase and lose my stuff, so love of stuff kept me from hitchhiking, you know? So then I thought about mugging an old lady and taking her purse because there's a lot of retired people in Florida, but I had one of those hangovers and I knew I'd pick on the one that was still doing aerobics twice a week. <laughs> and she'd me down and take her purse back and I'd look bad. So, uh, so that left call mom. And, uh, I called mom and, and she said, I don't know, you'll have to call me back in a couple hours. And, uh, and when I called her back, what she said to me was, We are not flying you home. We are flying the children's mother home. And it's only because we're afraid we'll never see you again. And she picked me up at the airport on June 26, 1988, and she dumped me off at the local detox center, and I was annoyed, you know. Um, And, again, I'm not hurting anybody, but, you know, those of you who know Cincinnati and know where the cat house is, it's in the worst section of town. And I can't imagine what it took for her to drive there at midnight and leave her 29-year-old daughter on the steps, and say, go in or don't, but you can't come home with me, I'm done. You know, I mean, what does that take to have to cut your kids loose like that? But know that if you keep helping them, you're going to kill them. And, uh, and I went in, and and I didn't know. I mean, if I had known I was never going to drink again, I probably would have had somebody buy me a drink on the plane, you know. I just, I had no idea. I was one of those ones who went through treatment. I was a star test taker, for the book back at, you, know, and I circled 90 days, and I never got there. Um, and this time, I just didn't have a clue. And the next morning, I was laying in bed reviewing my options because, <laughs> you know, I mean, my car was impounded. I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have a job. These things were not new. You know, I'd been there before. But what was new was that this time I had no plan B. I didn't have one better idea. Everything I could come up with, I had tried before, and it had failed, or I had burned that bridge. And I was. my father talked about having no friendly direction left, you know. I had no – plan B, and thank God, you know, because if if you're new, I always try to say that if you're new and you still kind of have a plan, tell us your plan, you know, it's like we want to know, you know, tell us your plan so that you can just relax and do Alcoholics Anonymous, because, I mean, in my experience, when I had a plan left, I couldn't get sober, because I still had another way, you know, I still had another way, and that kind of blows powerless right out of the window, and I'm laying there the next morning, and I just had this passing thought, like... Well, well, for one thing, I was laying there. I was 29 and a half years old. I never thought I'd live to be 30. I just didn't. I shouldn't have. I had my own Harley Davidson, you know. I I bartended in places where people shot at each other. I mixed drug and alcohol, you know. I drove drunk. I was not real picky about the people I dated. Um, I should have been dead or hurt badly, and here I was, 29 and a half years old. And what I realized that morning was, I was showing no signs of dying. You know, I was like, I was. I was depressingly healthy and um and what I realized that day was I wasn't gonna die. You know, it's like this voice just came and said People like you don't die, that and you know, um now my husband, if you ever hear him speak, he knew he was gonna die if he took one more drink. He knew if he took one more drink he was a dead man and the voice in him said, I wanna live, get up you know. And I'm over here, if you could have guaranteed me I'd be dead in six months, I would have left there and gotten a beer. But I knew that day I was gonna live. And that no matter how bad it was, it could get worse. There were levels of worse I hadn't even thought of yet. And at I there's a lot of seven year old winos out there and you know, I mean I was I was a connoisseur of wild Irish Rose in my twenties. You know, it's well I always say, you know, it's kinda of, it's 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 good stuff. For one thing, the bottle's square so it doesn't roll out from under the car seat, you know? I mean, you got to think about things like that when you drink like I drank. And uh so I realized I wasn't going to die and I just had this passing thought like, well, you know, whatever those people are doing in AA, it's working and your way isn't. That was my big surrender, you know? I, I didn't have the white light experience Bill did. I didn't have it going down in flames, surrender. It was just kind of a pathetic little, you know, when you light a match and it goes, you know, that's my big spiritual surrender. It's like, uh, screw it, you know. Okay. So, uh, I turned myself into Alcoholics Anonymous and I had no idea I was going to stay sober. I just started to show up. I, uh, I, I got out of detox on Friday at 4th of July weekend. My car was impounded. I intuitively knew that if I went back to where I lived, I would drink. So I was able to get a cheap. I mean, I wasn't at the Holiday Inn, but I was on a hotel that was on the bus line so I could walk out of the hotel, get on the bus, and go to 405 Oak Street. And that's what I did. And um, and the first night, that Friday night, there was a girl talking that I had met four years before when I was passing through, and she was four years sober. And she said from the podium that alcoholism took her to the place where she didn't want to work and she didn't want to take care of her daughter. She just wanted to drink. And I couldn't believe it because there was my biggest secret that somebody just said to the room full of people and she became my first sponsor, you know, and I stayed for the midnight meeting that night because I was a bar drinker, and I had to hang out till the bars closed. And I went back the next day, and, and you know, I didn't, I did stand up and say I was new. I just, you know, what I did for the first 30 days was everything I'd never done before. You know, it's like this voice in my head. When I starting to go with my instinct, a voice would say, that's what you did last time, and you drank. You didn't call anybody last time, and you drank. You didn't tell anybody you were new, and you drank. So I, you know, the, the next night I went, and Oak Street has rows like this, and then there was a wall. Well, I still didn't want to be, like, way new, you know, because I was going early because I was riding a bus. So I sat over. I call it the new guy chair. It was, like, in the second row because, you know, if you sit in the back, we know you're new. And if you sit in the front, you might have to talk to somebody. <laughs> so so I sat in the second row, way over on the end, you know, and, and sat through the meeting. And when it was time to say the Lord's Prayer, I went, and there's, like, there's a wall here. There's no hand to hold. And I just thought, Jesus. You are never going to get, I mean, I just hung my head. You're never going to get this right. You're such a loser. You can't even say the Lord's Prayer right, you know. And, And I hung my head to pray, and somebody in front of me turned around and took my hand. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, you know, that one, to this day, I don't know who it was, but they need to know. That's why I came back on Sunday. You know, I was so stunned that somebody would take the time to look behind them to be sure everybody had a hand to hold. And, you know, that's 12-step work, too. 12-step work is not just sponsoring 50 people. You know, um, the book says we try to carry this message, you know, and 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 I try to be very clear on what the message is. It's not my message. You know, this message, that I was powerless over alcohol, that no human power could relieve my alcoholism, and that God could not would if he were thought. That's what this message is. That's the message I'm supposed to be carrying. And those people who ever took my hand said, God loves you. Take my hand; you're not by yourself. And I started crying, and I, you know, so I spent the first half of the prayer crying, the second half of the prayer trying to like look, look like I wasn't, so I'd be cool by the end, you know, and uh and I came back on Sunday, and it was just like that, you know, and I just showed up. I, I tell I tell people sometimes, you know, because we're big explainers, <laughs> we want to explain to people, and, and I tell them, you know, I mean, what worked for me was shut up, show up, and quit explaining, you know. I had been explaining my whole life. So you would understand, because if you just understood, you know, I guess, who knows? I just because you never did, so it didn't really matter. But but it was like I stopped explaining and started showing up, you know. Um, people were very interested in what I do, not in what I tell them I'm doing, you know. Um, my my sponsor-in-law, Dick, <laughs> says, uh, that's my sponsor's husband, if you can do this. But he says, you know, follow the feet of the people, you know. Don't just listen to the voices in Alcoholics Anonymous. Follow the feet and see what they're doing. See who's walking it. And I just, I kept showing up. And I started going to a big book meeting because I knew, you know, from my various experiences in AA that you should read your big book every day. And so, you know, keen alcoholic mind here, I thought, well, they read the whole chapter, so that will count. I won't have to read it at home, you know. I mean, that was my deal. And the meeting was at noon, so I had my whole day free. And when they read the whole chapter, it chews up half of the hour, so chances were better I wouldn't get called on to talk, you know. So, I mean, I didn't really go expect, you know, hoping to learn all about the book and save my life. I just... I knew you had to read, and, and I had my day free. Well, you know, God's got a sense of humor, and while my day was free, I forgot I had no life and uh by six thirty, I was getting pretty antsy, you know, <laughs> so I would go back to another meeting and uh and reading the book in the meeting where they read it out loud, I heard it. I started to hear it because when I would read at home, I mean my brain was mush, and I would read either I'd realize that I'd read ten pages and had no idea what they said because I'd been thinking or I would read one paragraph four times, you know, and then when I closed the book, it was just gone, you know. And so I'm going to this meeting, and I started, because I went to these big book meetings because I thought, well, you know, I'll go through the chapters once, and I'll graduate to discussion meetings. And uh, and uh so I went through, but it, it was funny because, I mean, even in the meeting I couldn't stay on the page a lot, you know. I, I'd be, you know, but what about the real alcoholic? He starts off as a member. I wonder what it's going to cost to get my car out of impound, you know. And, and I'd hear yeah, him turn the page, and so I'd be like, morning he searches us madly for the bottle, you know, I wonder if he's got a girlfriend, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't stay on the page, but it checked you know, it started to sink in, because it, it was funny, you know, I still had all these people up there in my head, I mean, they're still there, I just, I have appointed a sober chairperson, and I leave them alone now, you know, but, but I, uh, I'd be, I'd leave a meeting, and I'd be going, and I I would just kind of pop in to see what we were all talking about up there, you know, and, and up here, somebody saying, "Well, that was pretty cool." A guy said in the meeting, "Yeah, I didn't know that was in the book." And I thought, "Jesus, my head is even getting sober." You know, I mean, so so I just got the heck out of there and let them talk about AA, and and uh, I just kept showing up. And, and one of the things, you know, I mean, when you go through treatment, and and it's always the perky, happy people that come to do the institution meetings. And of course, the last thing you want to see in detox is a perky, happy person, and uh. You know, and they would be grateful. I'm so grateful. And I just, oh, grateful people just made me want to puke. I just, you know, I mean, I didn't want what you had. I never wanted what you had. I got here because nine-year-old daughter had been killed that day by a drunk driver. And uh, the following Tuesday, I went to that Big Book meeting, and he was there. And I couldn't believe he was even in a meeting four days after his daughter had been killed. And he talked about where it happened. it happened outside a hospital where when you got sentenced to your three-day thing if you got a drunk driving charge, And you got sent to this hospital. And the people there doing their three-day weekend were outside on break when it happened. And two cars were drag racing to the car. She was in head-on. She was killed instantly. And he said, you know, maybe if one of them got sober, it wasn't for nothing. You know, I just have to believe that God will turn some good out of that. And when I left that day, I started thinking, you know, what if that had been my kids? What would they, I mean, you know, I was two, three weeks sober. What would they remember about me? Or what if I had been in that car? What would they be left with? You know, and I just had this. It was one of those times where the sky got bluer and the leaves got greener, and this, I just realized I had a reprieve. I had a chance. I could go right then and call my kids and tell them that I loved them. And I didn't have to make a bunch of promises. One of my first amends to my children when I got sober was I quit making promises I couldn't keep. You know, my word was worth nothing when I got sober, nothing. And, and I began to try to be trustworthy. That, you know, if I said I'd be somewhere, I would be there. Be where you say you were, be. Do what you say you'll do. You know, those were deep concepts for me. The, the deepest thing, we were joking last week at an intervention convention about, wow, that's deep. One of the deepest things I heard was like, if you don't want to feel like a thief, stop stealing things. And <laughs> I wow. <laughs> wow. If you don't want to feel like a liar, stop lying.
1: Wow. You
0: know. So, uh. Anyway, I just realized I had this reprieve and that, you know, that I was grateful for having a second chance. And I even heard the word grateful go by, and I thought, who said that, you know? But I did. It was like I could go call my kids. And and what I realized right then was that I couldn't undo all that damage. I couldn't go, you know, I couldn't rebuild it. I couldn't erase it. But what I had that day was a starting place. Wherever I was, right there, I could start and build forward some kind of relationship with them where my word meant something. And I could be a parent. And that if I was ever only a weekend mom, if I never got custody of them back, I could be a good weekend mom, you know. And that's the first time I think I ever looked at life on life's terms and just took it where it was. And that was a huge beginning for me. And a year later, I got to tell that guy how much my life changed that day. And, and I didn't want to be so arrogant as to assume I was the one, you know, that it, but that I could tell him, you know, here is some good that came of that. My life changed the day you said that. So I kept showing up, and my kids went to a lot of meetings with me, um, not because I wanted to include them in my recovery, but because I knew I'd kill them if we went all weekend with no meetings. And so we went to a meeting Friday because I had them on weekends. I started first. I took them one at a time because they argued and made me nervous. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they were four and six, and I was a little jumpy when I was new. And um, and uh, so, you know, they started going to meetings with me. And, and thank God, because, you know, Sarah's four, but she'd be on my lap in a discussion meeting. And, Somebody'd be sharing and I'd be thinking, what the heck is this? And he just said, my name's Bull, I'm an alcoholic, does that? Can't remember, and then Sarah would go, Mom, when he's done, can I say thanks, John? I was like, John, that's it, John, okay, yes, yeah, sure, honey, you go right ahead, and, you know, and, uh, but the bigger thing that happened was my children started to get well in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, um, you guys talked to them. You guys look them in the eye when you talk to them you colored with them. You asked Sarah to help you get the coffee pot. You played video games with them. You sat down, you know. And I learned to talk to my children and interact with my children watching you guys. Because I don't know how to do that. I am not an intuitive parent. I'm not an intuitive wife, you know. And I never was an intuitive AA member. But so one of the things I learned here is it's okay not to know. <laughs> you can ask somebody. And... Um, And so I started watching you guys talk to my kids, and I started learning how to do that. And we would go to eating meetings and all that stuff. And when I was about a year sober, we went to a picnic, and um, we got there. There were kids playing. I said, oh, there's kids playing over there if you want, you know. And They never wanted to play, but it was no big deal. And that day, and you know, about half an hour later, I felt a tug on my leg, and it was my son who was seven. He said, Mom, I just wanted to let you know we're over there if you need us. And I realized, you know, I mean, the grace for me was that every now and then God picks up the curtain, and for a second I can glimpse what's going on. And I realized that my kids knew that day that if they let me out of their sight, I would be there when they came back. You know? And it took a year. And I'm so glad I didn't make them go play, that they found that in their own time. And we kept showing up. And, you know, by 15 months sober, I had, this is another, like, give the newcomer hope thing, but I had a car, insurance, and a driver's license all at the same time. (laughs) Not to mention the doors on the car all open and closed. And, um. you know, and I, I had a job, and I had a little apartment. Uh, my kids stayed with my mom after I got sober because we thought, ta- you know, they'd been in a stable environment. They had friends in a safe neighborhood, and they were in a good school district, and I'm living a block from the clubhouse, you know, and, and it didn't seem like it served the greater good to suck them down to my level in the name of reuniting the family, you know. I mean, my job was to catch up to them, and uh, so we – you know, we, we're doing stuff, and, and by Thanksgiving, I've got a little apartment, and things are looking pretty good, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm really kind of worried about Robbie because he's got all these women in his life. You know, I mean, there's my mom and his sister and me, and for his sake, I really probably should start looking around for some companionship, you know, because boy needs a man in his life. You know, I'm, I'm willing to do that for him. <laughs> and uh, so we went up to Oak Street for the Thanksgiving thing. They laid out a big dinner always at... at at 1 o'clock, and I went to the noon Big Book meeting, because that's what I do if there is one, and when I came out, I couldn't find my son, and somebody said, well, go look across the street, and there was a schoolyard across the street, and here's Robbie and another seven-year-old boy, and four of the guys from Oak Street, that was like 20, 21 years old, playing football, and you know, my first thought was, where else should a seven-year-old boy be on Thanksgiving except playing football with a bunch of guys, but the greater miracle was that once again, I got to glimpse what God was doing. And I knew that I had had absolutely nothing to do with making that happen for him. That so what I did was I went to my meeting and his needs got met. So I butted out of his life and called off the manhunt. And, uh, briefly. <laughs> <frankly, laughs> and, uh, kept doing Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? Cause it's like, I always think of it, it's like this, uh, <laughs> probably back to my outside issue days, but you know, I have this little triple beam in my head. And, uh, and it's like when I, you know, I would do a little AA. I mean, I was empty when I got here. I had nothing to lose. And and I started doing a little AA. It's like, you know, my my scale in life has two sides. And this side is my business, and God does this side, you know. And when I did a little bit of AA, I got a little job. And I did a little AA, and I got a little apartment, and I did a little more, and started having a relationship with my kids, and I started having better jobs. And I went back to school, and I kept doing AA. And it's like, as long as I keep putting on this side, you know, the other side fills up. But the mistake we make so often is we start helping God with this side, you know. Thanks for that job, God. I will now skip meetings so I can work triple time and do it, you know. Thanks for the man in my life, God. I'm going to stay home and work on him, you know. Thanks, God. I'll take it from here. Um, And, you know, what I do, what I've always done and I have continued to do is, is remember that this side of the scale is my business. I had nothing to lose when I got here, but at my, my sobriety is expensive now. I got a lot to lose now. Why would I do less to keep it? You know, why would I do less to keep it? And uh Chuck and I had met, oh, a year before I heard him speak. I'd never seen him before, so I kind of thought, oh, how sober can he be if I don't know him? <laughs> you know, I know everybody. And he gave this great talk, and I thought to myself, I want what he has, and I'm willing to go to any lengths to get it. <laughs> Actually, but I did remember his name, which was rare for me, and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we would see each other periodically and cross paths, and a year later we started hanging around a little more. We didn't really even say the D word for dating because we didn't want to jinx it. But we made a decision that we wanted to spend some time together, and we made a decision that we were going to keep our clothes on while we did that. You know, that we had both done the other stuff and uh, and what we wanted to do was get to know each other and uh and we dated you know for months, and we set a wedding date a year away when he asked me to marry him and uh and as the year wore on, we just wanted to be married more you know we didn't break up and get together twelve times we didn't you know as as the wedding drew closer and closer, we were more and more excited about being married and July will be twelve years you know and and I just you know I tell people it's like my room is still a nicer place when he walks in. You know, that's my rule of thumb. If you are laughing and smiling and your mate walks in and you don't smile again, there's a problem, you know. Are you smiling at the same time when you're in the room together? And uh so we, you know, and, and we agreed that we were going to try to keep God first because we knew, you know. We had God first, Alcoholics Anonymous, and then each other, you know, and that that's how it had to be. I didn't ever want to be first in his life or things would be horribly out of balance. And, and I, you know, jokingly say that, you know, on a good day Chuck is third if I'm not thinking about me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some days it's got a me, Chuck, but uh, I try to keep him up there in the top three. And, uh but you know, that's work for us because it hasn't been all rosy. I mean, we did we did uh, get the children. We got custody of the children in 1993. Um They spent a lot of time with us until then, but we waited until we could buy a house where they lived. You know, and Chuck got his college degree and he got insurance and when we could insure the children and move them into a house in their own neighborhood, you know, then we signed the papers. And, and my kids transitioned into living with mom and dad. You know, in 1993, they walked out the front door and got on the bus out of their parents' house like everybody else that lived in that neighborhood. And, uh, you know, what a miracle that was. We handed out candy at our home group, pink and blue. You know, it's a boy, it's a girl. And we haven't been married that long, so people are like, oh, you having kids? And we're like, yeah, they're 9 and 11, isn't it? Cool, you know? Great! Right. And, uh, I mean, what a dance it's been, you know? I couldn't, I couldn't have told you when I got here that what I wanted was a relationship with God, you know? Um, I, I, there's, there's some good news and some bad news if you're new, you know? I mean, the bad news is, it's all about God here, you know? But the good news is, it's all about God here. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, and, and I, my book says this means we're going to talk about God, you know. Bottom line, as the God of your understanding, and, and, and it talks over and over. A humble beginning is all we need. But I don't ever want to forget that I am not the message God is, you know. And uh there was a piece written by Clarence Snyder several years ago called My Higher Power of the Light Bulb. you know. Because one thing the big book says is that deep down within every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. And he wrote this article called My Higher Power of the Lightbulb. You can find it online. And he says, you know, the tragedy is that what we have begun to do is abandon newcomers to create their own God instead of helping them find the one that's there. You know, and and so that's what, I mean, that's what we do. You know, it's not about, look at me, aren't I great? And look at all I've done. It's like, you know, my life was wreckage. I was a complete and total failure at life. You know, and no human power, including my sponsor, could have saved me. Um but you've heard over and over and over this weekend how when we let go and gave up, you know, whether it was a huge flashing light surrender or a uh screw it you know, that uh that God answers all those calls. And I can look back in my life and see that every time I ever called him he was there. But I you know, there's a thing in Bill's story that I love that talks about, you know, he realized for a brief moment he needed the one of God and God was there and then it was you know, blotted out by worldly clamors. And what I finally realized was worldly clamors was all that noise in my head because I need him and I need that job and I need this money. And if I just got this, I'll be okay. You know, and that it always drowned out the noise. And the other thing I always wanted to do with God was a do-over. If I did have a great experience, I wanted to go do that again. You know, when I was 15 years old, I read a fictional book called Pontius Pilate. You know, and uh, I was just overwhelmed with the presence of God. Now, it's not like I didn't know how the story turned out. You know what I mean? But I'm reading this book. And I'm overwhelmed with the presence of God. So I went back to the bookstore and tried to find another book exactly like that one. And when I couldn't, I mean, I found a book by Chapter 3. It wasn't doing it for me, so I tossed it. And that kind of was my experience with God all along. I wanted to go back. And what I've learned here is God's a forward moving deal. You know, I get that experience of his presence, but then, you know, that's where the faith comes in, that I take the next step and trust he's going to be there. I don't go back and go, oh, let's do that again. And you know, some days it's real easy to walk in that and some days it's like walking off a cliff, you know. Um the drawback to having cute children is that they turn into teenagers. <laughs> and uh and we had some rocky times, you know, with my my son ended up being the one. You know, I told you my daughter turned normal on us. Well my son, God love him, he's like his mommy and uh and we had we had two or three years where I couldn't have told you we would ever all be able to sit in the same room again, you know. Uh, horrible, just horrible, horrible stuff, and uh you know what Chuck and I realized after the fact was something would happen, and we'd be ready to react, and we'd say, Let's pray first and, and we would do that and and then we'd sit down to talk and we'd go, well, you know, let's call Dick and Peg, that's our sponsors, you know let's call them, and then we would talk, and you know years later that hindsight went, Wow, that's like god AA, a then each other, you know that that we were lit wasn't just you know we were living it and didn't even know it. And we got through that, and now, you know, I mean, it's like a, a couple years after all that happened, my mom sings in a in a women's barbershop chorus in Indianapolis, and we had driven over to see her, and, and the four of us were driving back, and we're singing the oldies on the, you know, or on the radio, and there's four of us, we're all singing four different songs. It was horrible sounding. But all of a sudden, I realized where we were, and I thought, God, I mean, I didn't think we'd ever even be in the same room again, and here we are laughing and singing on a trip, you know. And there are times that I get out and go, how did I get here? I mean, when I was new, I wondered, is this really God or am I just thinking more positive this time? And it's like, you know, I can't get to where I am from where I was under my own power. You know, under my own power, I ended up weighing in detox, figuring out I wasn't going to die. And, uh, and, and I, you know, when I got here, I thought, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? What do you do for fun, you know? people would say oh we have dances and we go bowling and you know and I think what do you do for fun you know and and uh but the book says our attitude and outlook on life will change and that you know and a year later I'm going oh we have dances and we go bowling you know and the newcomers are looking like uh-huh you know um, but we uh we bought the kids bicycles and uh they were little enough that we got bikes too because we thought well we should probably ride with them they were i don't know 10 and 9 8 and 10 somewhere in there so uh we got them at christmas and the first warm day by this is before we got caught all the way up to the kids that we were like in the next neighborhood over you know we were catching up and uh and so the kids came over and we go out to bicycle ride and we bought Huffy's because they're you know they're priced right and they're pretty dependable bikes and so we're out riding through the suburbs mom dad big brother little sister you know and we go down the street, and this guy's mowing his grass, and I remember thinking, huh, that must be what you do if you, okay, make a note of that, mow the grass, you know. And uh so this guy waves at us, and I waved back, and about the time I waved, the old Zoom camera came back, and I got a look at where I was. And I just thought, oh, my God, I used to own Harley-Davidson, for God's sakes, and I am riding through the suburbs on a lavender huffy. <laughs> how did this happen? (laughs) You couldn't have told me when I was new. Guess what you're going to be doing four years sober back? (laughs) You know? But I'll tell you, the amazing thing was right there, right then, there was nowhere else I wanted to be but on that bike with those kids. You know? And that's a long way from being glad they're gone. You know? That's a long way. That's a change of heart brought on by a power greater than me. And, um, you know, I just, that's been my journey here you know god was pretty little when i got here you know my life had gotten smaller and smaller and smaller when i drank it's like when you're bored in school and you draw this little you know spiral thing in you have nowhere to go that's what my drinking did in my life and when i got here the direction turned you know and i saw a little and i believed a little and the circle got a little bigger and then i did a little more saw a little more believed a little more and it's you know so it's it's reversed its course and and it's huge and it's endless, you know. It's like the only limits there are the ones I put on them, you know. Um, it's just I never knew, I never knew that what I wanted was to be one of many. I couldn't have told you that when I got here. I couldn't have put that into words. That what I was looking for was my place in the world where I fit. Because right there where I wanted to be with those kids right then on the bike, that's the feeling I chased the whole time I drank. Every now and then all would be right with the world. I'd be in the right place at the right time with the right people. The rest of the time I was chasing it. If I just come with him, if I just gone with him, if I just gone here, and I didn't know that all that came because of a relationship with God, and knowing my place in the world, and knowing that I have a purpose in life, you know, and that, that my purpose is is to carry it back to where it was given to me, you know. Um, so, you know, that's what we do: give back where you got it, give back where you got it. I have not ever seen a step that says having had a spiritual awakening, we took it and went home, you know um it would be more convenient some days but uh, you know we we don't see ourselves where we are I never do I see my progress through you and I see where I want to be through those of you who are ahead of me you know and and it's never about who I am it's about who I am with you you know and who we all are when God's in the room and uh and there was a guy who talked and I, I don't even know I guess he's still alive but I haven't heard him in years and he used to tell this story at the end of his talk, and it's just one of those things that I didn't want to get lost, you know what I mean? So I'll tell you right up front, I stole this from Ray O'Kay, who I'm pretty sure stole it from a bigger book, but uh, but uh, you know, what he used to talk about was, was way back, you know, uh, there, there were rumors that, that God was on earth, and uh, and somebody sent a couple of his guys to see if it was true. You know, they went, he said, they said, go ask him, go ask him if it's for real. And what the man said was, go and tell them what you've seen. You know, the blind can see, that the deaf can hear, that the lame have taken up their beds and walked, and the dead are alive. And uh and what he said and, and what I so agree with is isn't that what's happened here in Alcoholics Anonymous? I mean I couldn't even see what I did to my family. And you could be telling me what I was doing and I couldn't hear it, you know, and, and my life was over. And so if you're new and, and you're wondering, you know, is this for real? Is this a real thing? Is God here? I mean, take a look around you, you know, because it's like the blind can see and the deaf can hear and the lame have taken up their beds and walked, and the dead are reborn. Thanks. <laughs>